Good evening. Appreciate everyone being here tonight. My prayer and hope is that when we go out that door tonight, that we will be better people than when we came in. And may the Lord help us in bringing that to come to pass. You know, the Bible contains stories of the lives of literally thousands of people, characters. Some of them are righteous, such as Noah. Some were evil, such as Judas Iscariot. Some were, some were despicable, like Jezebel and Ahab. Some were evil, but repented and were found righteous such as David and the Apostle Paul. Each one of us probably has favorites, favorite characters in the Bible that uh, we sort of look up to, except God and Jesus, of course. One which we like and try to emulate. One of mine is the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Do you realize that he wrote just about half of the books of the New Testament, 13 in number if you count Hebrews, and I believe he did write Hebrews. 13 out of 27 books were written by the Apostle Paul. The purpose of our lesson tonight is to examine his life and his writings and see if we can benefit from them. Paul was born in Tarsus, the chief city of Cilicia. He had Jewish parents, but was born a Roman citizen because his father must have been a Roman citizen before him, as we find in Acts twenty-two twenty-eight. Have you under, ever wondered why he had two names, Saul and Paul? Paul was part of his Roman name. But in addition to his Roman name, his parents gave him a Jewish name, Saul, perhaps in memory of Israel's first king was King Saul, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which Paul's family also were a part of. His Jewish heritage meant much more to Paul than his Roman citizenship. Unlike many Jews who had been scattered throughout the world, he and his family never did become involved in the Gentile way of life that surrounded them. This is explained in a statement that Paul made in Philippians 3 and 5, where he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Jew, I am a good Jew. While he was born in Tarsus, he was brought up in Jerusalem and was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great rabbis of that day. Paul's Jewish parents saw to it that their son was well grounded in the best traditions of the Orthodox Jew. Paul proved to be very conscientious and everything he did and what he believed. He was very zealous in his assault 
on the fast-growing Church of Christ, which had begun in Jerusalem. The church presented a real threat to all that he held most dear in the Jewish religion. The greatest problem Paul had was that its leader was one who claimed to be both Lord and Messiah, but he had suffered a death which was cursed by the Jewish law. If you have your Bibles and would like to, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning with verse 22. Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Paul believed that no good man would ever be crucified. Therefore, this man Jesus uh, couldn't be who he claimed to be. He was a criminal. He had been crucified. He believed that the survival of Israel demanded that the followers of Jesus be wiped out. And he worked hard to bring that about. The first martyr of the Christian church was Stephen. Stephen was one of the most outspoken leaders of the new movement, the Church of Christ. Luke told how Paul publicly associated himself with Stephen's executioners. Now Saul was consenting to his death, Acts 8 verse 1 says. He soon began a campaign designed to do away with the church. Paul himself related how he had persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Galatians 1.13 Let me sidetrack for a minute. I came across this as I was uh, studying this lesson and it uh, is something that I think should be said. The Bible is a book of redemption and that could be entitled that, a book of redemption. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we read about the creation of the heavens and the earth and, and all that was in it. Then God created two people, Adam and Eve, and placed them in the Garden of Eden and gave them just two commands, two commands that they were to do to be obedient to Him. One was to keep and tend the garden where they lived. And the second one was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all know the story of how Satan tempted Eve and she ate the fruit and gave to her husband and he also ate of it. They were cast out of the garden, lost and separated from God's blessings and grace. It took just two chapters of the Bible for man to lose his relationship with God. Then all of the other hundreds of chapters 
to present God's plan to get back man back into his good graces and a good relationship with God. God's scheme of redemption, as some people call it, is that effort that God put forth to bring man back into relationship with him. The word uh, scheme bothered me for a while because I always connected it with bad things, like uh, a scheme to rob somebody, making up a scheme to murder somebody. But then I found out that the word scheme simply means any plan or program of action. So I'm good with it now. The Bible is God's scheme of redemption, His plan to redeem mankind. Two chapters for man to get lost and the rest of the Bible to get him back into God's good graces. That's free. That's nothing to do with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's life was different, very different in many ways from all of the other apostles. First of all, his conversion was quite different. At the height of Paul's campaign against the church, he was confronted by the risen Christ in a vision on the road to Damascus to persecute the church at that place. If you'd like, turn to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Acts 9, 1. Then Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and of the way means Christianity, the way of Christ, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no more. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street uh, called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias 
coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, notice that, immediately, he preached Christ in all the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Paul's life was completely changed. His determination to obey the Jewish law was replaced with a life entirely dedicated to Jesus Christ. Luke's account of Saul's conversion leaves no doubt what one must do to receive the forgiveness of sins. Ananias told him that he must be baptized to wash away his sins. How can so many people overlook this gospel truth that baptism is necessary for salvation? Next, Paul's life was different in the commission he was given as an apostle. Note in verse 15 of what was just read, He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. Paul's mission was to carry the gospel to the Gentile race of people. Let me ask you a question. Would you have chosen a Hebrew among Hebrews to carry the gospel to the Gentiles? We just need never to forget that God's ways are higher than man's ways. He knows what he's doing. Notice back in verse 20 that Paul immediately began to preach Christ in the synagogues. Without doubt, God knew he was choosing the right man. I never will forget Brother Frank Acuff. When he would make a comment in Sunday school class, he would quote this verse, that God's ways are higher than man's ways and his thoughts higher than man's thoughts. God doesn't think like we do as people, but God's thoughts are righteous and always right. In Acts chapter 23, when Paul stood before the council and made this statement, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Saul of Tarsus was a man who gave it all to whatever he believed in. 
At first, he was ignorant as to who this man Jesus really was. But when he learned uh, that he indeed was the Christ, he did just as much for his cause as he had done before in ignorance against it. Paul's mission field was also very different than the other apostles. He went on at least four missionary journeys which took him to far places around the then known world. Remember that most Jews lived in and around uh, Judea, but Gentiles lived all over the then known earth. And we don't find where any of the other apostles traveled very much or went very far, although their commission was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, but we just don't have a record of them going very far. During these travels on his missionary journeys, Paul suffered greatly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, beginning, 2 Corinthians 11:23, he says, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of war, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in peril, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, and weariness and toil, and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides other things. What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Does this describe a former church destroyer? It does. The Apostle Paul changed. The Apostle Paul repented and was converted. He turned around. He was transformed. He was truly converted. A couple of questions. Can a liar be saved? Can a murderer be saved? Even though God does not do so, we tend to categorize sin from small and insignificant to large and serious. Is lying as serious a sin as murder is to you? The Apostle Paul is a great example that even a murderer can be saved. God will forgive all of our sins, no matter what they are, if we only obey Him. No one is ever too far gone, too sinful to become a Christian. Some people do not because... They think that they've done too many bad things for God to forgive them. 
But whatever sins we have committed, God will forgive us of those if we only obey him. The example, the Apostle Paul. His apostleship was different. To be an apostle and to be qualified to testify that Christ has been raised from the dead, one had to have positive proof of Christ's resurrection. One cannot truly testify of any event without being an eyewitness. We know that every one of Christ's apostles qualified in this, but so did the Apostle Paul. Since Paul did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah and had not associated with him after his resurrection, how did he qualify to testify of the resurrection? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul states, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And this grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is sometimes referred to as the resurrection chapter. There were false teachers at Corinth at that time who denied the resurrection. And to keep this error from creeping into the church, Paul proves that to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Son of God, is absurd. He says, first of all, if the dead rise not, it would mean that Christ did not. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15 states, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Secondly, it would mean that preaching was useless. In verse 14 states, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. It would mean faith was worthless. Verse 14 also, And you and your faith is also empty if Christ did not rise. It would mean that the apostles were liars. Verse 15 Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ. 
whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. It also would deny all possibility of salvation from sin if Christ had not arisen. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then he says, it would mean that the righteous dead were lost. But also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It would mean that all believers in Christ were to be pitied. Verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. It would mean that even the rite of baptism for the dead, as practiced by the heathen, was absurd. Baptism for the dead. Verse 29 states, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? For if the dead rise, do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Let me read that verse again. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Have you ever heard of this practice? People being baptized for the dead. Baptism for the dead. Apparently there were some in Paul's day who practiced it and believed in it. It's not taught in the Bible. It's error. And notice how Paul states this. He always used, used the third person pronoun, they and as practiced by the heathen. Baptism for the dead was practiced by the heathen. Paul here is simply using a familiar example as an argument. A long time ago, a pioneer preacher was preaching on the resurrection of the Lord and said, the Indians bury a dog and a spear with the fallen warrior and why should they do that if there is no resurrection? That is exactly what Paul is doing here. The pioneer preacher was saying that they, they, if they go to all this trouble of bearing a spear with a warrior, then, and if there is no resurrection, what good is that spear and, and warrior going to do? So Paul here is just using this as an example. The Mormons revived it and practice it today. I looked that up and they say that there are some people around the world who have died and never heard the gospel. And to have their sins forgiven, somebody must be baptized so that their sins can be washed away. There's nothing even close to that anywhere in the Bible. Once sins are forgiven, when that particular person is baptized, we cannot be baptized for a mother or father who is an invalid. We must be baptized for ourselves, and then our sins were washed away. 
Paul is simply using a familiar example as an argument. Paul affirms that Christ did die, was buried, and arose on the third day, and was seen by many people, especially the apostles, and then makes the important statement that I, last of all, was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul saw Jesus in his vision on the road to Damascus. Now the church had already been established. Christ had already arisen and gone back to heaven at this time. But then Paul then sees Jesus. Paul is equating himself with the other apostles who were all close acquaintances of Jesus after his resurrection, who lived with him daily. And then he says that he is the least of the apostles and actually not worthy of being called an apostle. He states, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, but I labored more abundantly than they all by the grace of God which was with me. And one thing about the apostle Paul, he, he wasn't bashful about bragging about his work for the Lord, was he? But he did go on to say that it was all by the grace of God. We need to be very careful in that area. When we do good deeds and we feel so proud of ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we must need never forget that everything we do, everything we have, is because of Christ, because of the grace of God. The Apostle Paul was different from the other apostles in that he was caught up into the third heaven. If you would like, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Second Corinthians 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for man to utter. Any of you know where the third heaven is? I, I don't either. David Lipscomb outlined three heavens as was understood by the Jews this way. The first heaven is the air or atmosphere where the clouds gather. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, we find this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. That immediately the atmosphere around the earth, uh, the Jews consider heaven number one. Heaven number two is the firmament containing the sun, moon, and stars. Space, we might call it. Matthew twenty four twenty nine, 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars, listen, will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That seems to describe heaven. And then third, God's dwelling place in third heaven. Matthew five sixteen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Note this. The Bible does not clearly put it this way, but this is what the Jews thought about it. Actually, where God dwells is not a thing of space uh, and physical location at all. It is a state of being beyond, above, and higher than even the second heaven. In this whole discourse, Paul did not intend to convey any information at all beyond the fact that he had experienced such marvelous events. He explained it in very few words, saying that it was impossible to describe, and more importantly, it was contrary to God's will, even if he could have described it. Mortal man simply does not possess the intellectual tools to comprehend either God or the nature of his dwelling place. Facts about God can only be known by what is revealed in his word, the Bible. Going beyond that is, is just flat wrong. So then, as far as the third heaven is concerned, I do not profess to know anything beyond the truth that a man was caught up into it. That's all I know about it. Also, Paul knew without a doubt where he would spend eternity. Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Turn there if you want. Second Timothy 4, beginning chapter, uh, verse 7. You're all familiar with this. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, uh, the righteous judge, will give me in that day, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. When I read this verse, I think of the sport in the Olympics called cross-country racing. It's, it's not a race around a padded oval track to me or a straightaway 100-yard dash. It's a race over rough terrain, which goes both uphill and down through the woods and meadows and across streams, all of it over a rugged trail. The boundaries are marked, and each contestant must remain inside these boundaries to legally be considered as finishing the race. The Apostle Paul's life was difficult while running his race for the Lord. The Christian life is difficult. It's like a cross-country race. It's rough. And when we fall, we can get up and repent of having done wrong and brush ourselves off and start running again.
the Apostle Paul's life was difficult. He knew that he had stayed inside the boundary lines and had finished to the end. He had taught what was necessary for man to obtain that crown of life, which uh, as well as being an example of how to get it done. The boundary lines for you and me as Christians today include the following. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Mark 2, verse 30. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mark twelve thirty-one. Study the show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Corinthians 2.15 Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16.15 Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25 On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up, as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. 1 Corinthians 6.2 But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians Nine, six, and seven. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James one twenty seven. Was the Apostle Paul perfect? Not at all. But he knew that he had walked in the light, and in doing so had been continually cleansed. Of all his sins. 1 John 1 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all our sin. Someone once wrote a song entitled A Pile of Crowns. The lyrics are about a man who dreamed that he had died and went to heaven. The first scene he saw was God and Christ sitting on their thrones. Between these two thrones, there was a large table. And on that table, he saw a pile of crowns. The Apostle Paul knew that one of these crowns belonged to him. May God help us to finish the course and to gain for ourselves one of those crowns. Thank you.